Hey folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 90 something, 90, what is it? 98. It's 98. Um, it is, uh, you've probably noticed, it's autumn. Autumn is no longer coming. It's here, so saddle up the direwolves. We ride tonight. <laughs> wow. All right. You didn't see that coming, did I, you? I, no. I did not. I forgot to source any direwolves when I was down at the farmer's market this morning, but I think actually now that I... Now that I reflect on what I was finding, it was like it's that amazing season uh, where we're still getting the berries and now and the stone fruits, and we're also getting many of the fall, like the brassicas and such. And um, I did not see any direwolves there this morning on offer. Not a one. Not a one. That's a shame. Maybe they're not at the farmers market. Uh, were there farmers there? If so, that implies the direwolves are not at least dense on the ground. That's probably true. Yeah. All right. Um, All right. We got stuff to do. We got stuff to talk about. Uh, today we're going to talk about um, we're going to talk about our our, our book um, continuing to and some of the critique, some of the um, yeah critique that is uh, come at it and um, and you know what critique is and what it is doing in the world and its value. We're going to talk about some of the earliest Americans, some new um, some a new scientific result out this week. Um, which is consistent with the view of the peopling of the Americas that, that we uh, reflect on in uh, in our book. Um, and in service of that, we're also going to talk about this concept of stolen land and um, understanding human history and how history is often being taught. And um, and a couple of weeks ago or so in the Q&A, we got asked if we knew of this Roger Scruton essay called Dying in Time, and neither of us did. Uh, and I have since read it, and uh, we're going to share a little bit of it and talk about the value of of courage. All right. Uh, but before we do that, we have some logistics. Okay. Um, if you've gotten the book, a hunter gatherers guide to the 21st century evolution of the challenges of modern life, and you have enjoyed it, please consider, um, giving a review that said, uh, Amazon has been sold out since three days after publication date. Uh, and it remains, um, sold out to this day. We know there are more books coming. Um, but, uh, if you are looking for it, Barnes and Noble still has copies and we encourage you to go there. Most local booksellers apparently are out as well. Um, it is, there are more, more copies coming, but supply chains and, um, the incredible response to this book have both um, caused there to be shortages where we were hoping there would not be any. Should point out, though, that the audiobook is doing spectacularly well, anomalously well, which might partially be because our, our voices are well known and so people are preferring that mode. But it also may be that people who aren't finding the hardcover are, are buying that and hopefully they will enjoy it. It is read by us. Yep, it is. It is read by us. And um Strangely, it's not available in um, in a large part of the world, and I think that may also be a supply chain issue. It is a supply chain yeah. issue, yes. Mm -hmm. The supply of vibrations mm -hmm. of air molecules is apparently not sufficient to meet the demand. Yeah, yeah. No, that's um, it's really hard to fathom, and uh, the the publisher on the other side of the pond is is working on it. It's not their fault. It's unclear why. But uh, for those of you in other English-speaking um, parts of the world who are looking for the audiobook, it should it is available apparently everywhere but Audible, but um, Audible in the UK, not, not so much. Um, okay. If you're watching on YouTube, consider switching over to Odyssey. Um, that's where the chat is happening. If you are watching live and you want to be participating in the chat, you may uh, ask us questions. We're going to try to prioritize questions about the book this week, but there's always there's always room for a lot more. Um, and you can ask questions at www.darkhorsesubmissions.com. 
consider joining our Patreons. Tomorrow is the monthly private Q&A on my Patreon. The questions have already been asked for this month, um, but it's small enough, it's intimate enough uh, that we are able to engage the chat in real time and often um, can can respond to questions that are asked um, in real time. And then those stay up afterwards for, um, for patrons to watch if they can't do it in real time. Um, so that's tomorrow at 11 a.m. from 11 to 1 uh, Pacific time. And maybe we'll just go right to our ads before then jumping into the main part of the program. So visual listeners, visual watchers, I suppose, will see the border around the screen indicating that we are reading ads. For those of you who are listening, if you would put on your ad-colored glasses, that mm -hmm. would be useful. Very, very good. Yep. So we have three sponsors this week. Uh, again, as we've said before, we only take sponsors for products that we actually stand behind. And uh, we have rejected many people who have approached many companies that have approached us, um, not because necessarily they're products we don't approve of, but just that we have no um, ability to have a relationship with. Uh, so the three that we are uh, bringing to you this week are, are ones that we have brought before, Vivo Barefoot, Four Sigmatic, and Omax Cryofreeze. Vivo Barefoot is on a mission to create regenerative footwear and experiences that bring you closer to nature and your natural potential. It makes shoes for feet. That sounds unremarkable, perhaps, until you realize that most shoes are not made for your feet. They're made for someone's idea of what feet should look like and do and be constrained by. Most shoemakers seem to have no idea what feet are or what they should be able to do. And we um, have were sent by Vivo Barefoot uh, a few pairs each, and we've been wearing them for a few months now. And they have, aside from when we're in cleats for biking or, um, or otherwise need specialized shoes, um, this is what we are both wearing. We love them. They It feels like you're barefoot, but you have the protection of shoes. You get better tactile feedback from the surfaces you're walking on. They cause no pain at all because there are no pressure points forcing your feet into odd positions. And it's actually ridiculous how fantastic they are. And to, to that point, I will say that when we were flying back from Texas a couple of weeks ago, a guy sitting across from me across the aisle from me on the plane, asked me about the shoes, and he was wearing them too. He said, I don't see them out here very often, but I love these shoes. Uh, he's a runner. He said, I run in them. So he's actually using them as running shoes um, and as everyday shoes, as you know, plain going shoes. And we had a little conversation about how we both uh, wished that they were more widespread because we imagine that people will um, you know, have a better relationship with walking and with their own bodies if they would be wearing shoes that are this well-designed with this much of a sense of what it is that the human foot is and has been and how not to impair it uh, with with footwear. So, um, I, you know, I could go on and on and on, but let me just go right to the call to action here. Go to vivobarefoot.com slash darkhorse to get an exclusive offer of 20% off. Additionally, all new customers get a 100-day free trial so you can see if you love them as much as we do. That's vivobarefoot, V-I-V-O-B-A-R-E-F-O-O-T dot com slash darkhorse. Second ad. All right. Four Sigmatic. Uh, that's F-O-U-R, Sigmatic. Um, this is a wellness company known for its delicious mushroom coffee. I know that sounds weird and kind of off-putting. I was skeptical, but I've been drinking it lately most mornings, and it's really, really good. It contains coffee, as you might expect, although um, from the name you might think maybe it's just mushrooms. But no, it's got organic, fair trade, single-origin Arabica coffee, and also has lion's mane mushroom uh, for productivity and chaga mushroom for immune support. It adds, for me, I think, a little something, some crispness, some focus. Uh, the world seems a little more clear after drinking it. It's delicious, just like regular coffee, if you like that sort of thing, as I do. You can't taste the mushrooms, It's if that's what you're worried about, um, but it tastes just like your favorite coffee, dark and nutty and delicious. 
Um, this, like all of Four Sigmatic products, are organic, vegan, gluten-free. Every single batch is third-party tested to ensure its purity and safety, so you know you're getting the highest quality coffee and mushrooms possible. And they back all of their products with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love every sip or get your money back. So we have an exclusive offer with Four Sigmatic on their best-selling mushroom coffee, but just for Dark Horse listeners, get up to 40% off and free shipping on mushroom coffee bundles. You go to foursigmatic.com, that's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com, Dark Horse, uh, and save up to 40% and get free shipping. So foursigmatic.com slash darkhorse, fuel your productivity and creativity with some delicious mushroom coffee. All right. Omax cryo-freeze. Let us talk about pain. Pain is an adaptation. It does various things for you. It tells you when you are doing damage to something and you should stop. It tells you when you are at risk of doing damage to something. And it can train you to avoid behaviors that might cause damage. However, much pain that is chronic is not useful. It's simply annoying. It distracts you and it causes you to pay less attention to other things. Omax CryoFreeze is a CBD-based um, product that allows you to deal with chronic pain. You just roll it on. It smells good, I think, a very light smell, but it smells good. It's not sticky or otherwise gross. Uh, it, isn't, it isn't greasy. It's 100% natural, and it is designed to block pain receptors right at the location where you have pain. So, for example, if you've been driving too much, I did some driving uh, recently and got out of the car and felt a bit stiff in the shoulder. Put it on. It works well. All right. So Omax Health is offering our listeners 20% off a full bottle of CryoFreeze CBD pain relief roll-on. This discount also applies towards any product site-wide. Just go to omaxhealth.com today and enter the code DARKHORSE. That's Omax, O-M-A-X, health, H-E-A-L-T-H dot com and enter the code DARKHORSE and get 20% off CryoFreeze or any other product site-wide. All right. That's our ads. Um, let's talk about, let's talk about critique. Let's do it. Um, critique is an utterly necessary part of many um, aspects of human endeavor. Science, for sure. Art as well. It looks a little bit different um, in general in art. Uh, but anyone who has taken, for instance, studio art classes understands uh, the value and the and the necessary place of critique um, in assessing even something um, like art, which might be understood to be, you know, sometimes representational, but even so, there is obviously interpretation involved. All right. I want to uh, stop here. So uh, I have said that very often we have a term in which there's the legitimate version of something and the malignant version. Mm-hmm. And... There's a question about whether we should be saying, I think critique is one of the most useful things in the universe. Very hard to come by because in general, people have perverse incentives. Even people who are on your team may not want to give you honest feedback because they don't want to hurt your feelings or um, it may complicate your relationship. And so getting honest feedback is fantastic. It's the thing that allows you to navigate and improve. But, but it's, it's tough. But it's, it's tough rare. to deliver and it's tough to receive. Right. If, and we if all, it's negative. Yeah, nobody likes deli- you know, delivering uh, critique to somebody that they value, right? Um, so it's, it's a, um, an important but rare phenomenon in the universe. And it is different from criticism, which can be motivated by all kinds of things, right? So maybe 
critique is a version of criticism. It's a uh, an honorable exploration of what might be changed or improved or what isn't right, mm -hmm. rather than just simply uh, the allegation that something isn't right, which may or may not be well-founded. Is that fair? Yeah, no, I think that is fair. Um, I think um, some forms of critique um, are uh, more common in some cultures than others. And I think they're also, it, it also may be gendered. Um, in fact, I'm certain that it is. So with regard to cultures, I think, for instance, um, somewhat stereotypically, but accurately, uh, the, the Jewish dinner table tends to be one in which there's talking over one another and there's disagreement and it's often very lively. And uh, none of that disagreement, which sometimes is critique, uh, is imagined to be about um, hatefulness or discouragement of thinking um, into areas where you might be wrong or more capable of making errors than in others, right? It's all, it's about, it's, about, it's exactly about in being in service of both um, the, you know, the family dynamic and community and also truth. Right. And uh, I'm, I'm hesitant here because I don't have a lot of experience with Japanese culture, but the reputation of uh, Japanese culture is that the critique is delivered so subtly that one has to read deeply in in order to get it. It's not that it isn't there, right. but um, but the point is your calibration has to be very different, right? Because if you're expecting to just, for somebody to just say flat out, hey, this is what you did wrong and here's what you might do, and somebody is really, you know, uh, if it's written between the lines or something like that, you may have to go after it in order to even get the value of it. And of course, if, you know, if in your home culture, you will be expected to understand exactly the form that the critique comes in and be either unable to detect or flabbergasted by the directness of critique that may come at you depending on um, you know which end of the spectrum your home culture happened to have and I would say um, that we also know this you know cultural differences are different from sex differences because every single culture um, has both sexes and always has uh, and so you know this is this is one of the many reasons that the kinds of isms that people talk about um, are not simply of a type right um, that sexism um, and sex differences are very different than say racism and and um, possible race differences. Uh, but uh, something that I have been thinking about a lot of late and have begun to talk about a little bit in some of the very many interviews we've been doing about the book um, is the differences in um, male and female uh, strategies with regard to establishing and maintaining dominance uh, that uh, you know we, we all need because we are now living in a world thankfully, gratefully, in which men and women can interact as, you know, on a par, as equals in the intellectual space. Um, but uh, pretending that we don't have differences that um, that are more ancient than that ability is, is a fool's errand. And uh, in general, um, across species that have them, and certainly across um, human cultures and time and space, we see that dominance hierarchies in males are um, typically created and maintained by rather overt mechanisms. Um, and in the form of critique, that would be being really direct, you know, saying very directly, actually, no, I think you're wrong, here's why. And uh, female dominance hierarchies, both in other species and in humans throughout time and space, are much more likely to be covert in nature. And so use um, more, more subtlety, more nuance, sometimes going around, um, you know, skirting the actual person with whom you might have a critique and talking to someone else about it. And, you know, on, on these topics, I have much, much more to say. Um, and, you know, 
I am not making value judgment here. I am observing what we know to be true. Um, but this is part of the reason that men and women coming together into sort of professional spaces often have problems, um, that the nature of how we expect, on average, you know, population level differences, critique to come, and how it feels um, to a woman, say, if someone is very direct, or to a man if someone is really not direct, um, you know, a man is less likely to hear their critique, and that's not necessarily because he's being daft, it may be because that's really not the culture that he comes from, and a woman may be more likely to feel um, attacked by a direct critique, even if attack was never the intention, um, nor the desire of the person giving it. So um, recognizing the many types of ways that critique occurs, um, even in good faith environments, I think is is valuable. Yes. And there is, uh, you know, I, I quite like the point you make about uh, the difference between, differences between male and female being of a fundamentally different kind than the differences between people from different cultures, yeah. right? Uh, to the extent that you're uh, correct, and I think you are correct, that female kinds of jockeying involve more covert, covert uh, mechanisms at the point that we start intermingling in a space where high quality critique is extremely valuable it may be misread in right. other words it may be understood to not be literal but to be uh, you know a subtle attempt to undermine or something like that and uh, that's a recipe for disaster right Absolutely. you're either in an environment where critique is understood to be highly valuable, or it's a weaponized environment where critique is used uh, to to destabilize someone, and you've got to know which one of those you're in in order to even interpret what you're hearing. True, I don't. So a person could hear what you just said and map on um, those two things to male female, and I would say that's absolutely not not correct. And I don't think that's what you meant to say that the idea that critique as weaponization is a female. Um, well, I would say about that would be a covert mechanism. Yes, but it's one of very many. There, it, right. it's, it's hardly true that uh, the ways that women engage in critique is inherently weaponized. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that if you are going to avail yourself of um, uh, of covert mechanisms for jockeying, mm -hmm. then critique that is not what it appears to be is one. Yeah. And you know, yeah. in an environment, in you know, let's say. A scientific environment, uh, you know, it's one thing between labs, but within lab, for example, you want to have very high quality critique coming from people who in the end have an interest in you succeeding. And and frankly, that is direct. And in fact, so I, I haven't talked about it extensively because it's not out yet, but I've got a, you know, a scientific article coming out on exactly this, as you know, um, that's been sort of in press forever. Um, Exactly positing that um, we, in fact, in you know, in some situations that have been traditionally male, um, like science, like business, uh, the more male typical style of of critique, um, which is overt, uh, is likely to be the one that we need to default to. Uh, so that I'll just. I'll just asterisk that and we'll come back to it once that paper is out and I can share it um, and talk more about it. Um, but we wanted. Um, we wanted to uh, do a tiny little compare and contrast between two pieces of uh, criticism our book has received, mm -hmm. right? Um, <clears throat> so we've got both a um, a 
a careful analytical, analytical hmm, a careful analytical review on Amazon that's two stars and um, you know we we disagree but it's it's careful and we'll talk about that second and then we have a review a, a review I'm going to put it in quotes in the Guardian um, in which the reviewer appears to have no background in or interest in actual scientific thinking and and let me preface this by saying actually being um, having no background in science you know effectively being scientifically literate is totally fine you know we're all born with scientific uh, capabilities to some degree with like a, a an interest in exploring what the world is and for most of us uh, we don't get exposed to uh, how to think carefully scientifically in school or even actually you know kills that instinct off in us and so the fact that most people most adults are walking around without really a sense of what science is and how it operates um, isn't damning and um, it's unfortunately true I wish it weren't but it is um, but what is um, what is concerning is how many people think that they're being scientific and are actually utterly resistant to any kind of scientific thinking. And, um, you know, part, part of the blame here goes to uh, the way that social science has evolved over the last 20 or 30 years, right? That this sort of social constructionist view of humanity has become dominant in sociology and anthropology and psychology and in pretty much all the social sciences. And with that has come a complete misunderstanding of what an evolutionary framework is and would do. And so people who engage in um, social constructionist thinking often imagine that they're doing something careful, but, um, but, but they're not. Um, so one way that we can see that we're not engaging with, with criticism of a scientific, um, in a, of a scientific sort is um, when we can see that the conclusion had ar was arrived at before the actual review was written and when the review is not actually about the thing that it's supposedly reviewing. So here's just one quote from this Guardian review. Hying and Weinstein's advocacy of the still unproven lab leak hypothesis gel nicely with the don't play God, mind the unforeseen consequences, stick to the traditional worldview that the book promotes. So I would just say two points to this before um, you say what you want to say about it, Brett. Um, the idea that, that this reviewer is bringing up lab leak or anything about COVID at all is um, points to exactly uh, what I'm saying. You know, this isn't a book about COVID. It was, in fact, the first draft was finished um, you know, before COVID was a thing. And uh, the idea that that has a place in a review that's supposedly about a book tells us right away that this isn't what it appears. It's not a book review. And um, then the stick to the, uh, the idea that this is a stick to the traditional worldview that this book is promoting um, is, you know, suggests either that the reviewer did not in fact read the book, which is quite possible, or that he is willfully either misunderstanding um, or at least misrepresenting what he does understand to be the case, um, because we are quite explicitly not arguing for a traditional uh, worldview, um, and we say it over and over and over again. So this is either sloppy or anti-scientific, or it's uh, it, it reflects a conclusion that was arrived at long before the book was written, which means that this is not a person who should have been put in charge of reviewing such a book. Well, I think actually uh, I read the review, and I think it implies something even more troubling, mm. if a bit subtle and common. What it implies is that this person is a verificationist, right? Because what our book argues very clearly and explicitly across the entire thing is we cannot go back. We have to go forward. That is dangerous. And we must figure out what that we bring with us from the past is still relevant and useful and what has to be replaced. Now, the problem is if you are 
a, a person, a traditionalist, and a verificationist. You will find conservatism in our book. If you are a progressive and an advocate for a different and better world, you will find radicalism in our book. And the idea that one has to balance these things is really what the book is about, right? Mm -hmm. But somebody who's out to uh, to deliver a negative review, and this person uh, clearly is, a few clicks reveal that they actually have this position and either The Guardian knew they were sourcing somebody who would deliver a scathing review or they didn't know and should have, but either way, that's what they did. Um, but in any case, a verificationist going through the book and finding reason to dismiss it on the basis that, you know, it is a it is about some sort of a conservative traditional worldview tells you that they, if they read it, they, you know, they got half of it. Um, but the other thing is, what a fascinating week to deploy this trope about the lab leak, right? Mm -hmm. Because the lab leak, as much as people had realized that it was uh, extremely likely as of, you know, John Stewart's beginning to mock it as he did, took another leap, you know, the remainder of the distance uh, was largely covered by the discovery that there had been a grant proposal to induce uh, to introduce exactly the furin site that we find in SARS-CoV-2 uh, that had been delivered by EcoHealth Alliance and Peter Daszak. So we know that this exact change had been proposed. Now, that grant proposal was rejected, but it doesn't matter. The point is, what a week to just press that button, oh, yeah. lab leak conspiracy theory, when in fact uh, all the reasonable people have realized that it was, you know, it was never a dismissible conspiracy theory. It was always viable and there's an awful lot of evidence for it. Well, it seems to me there's an analogy here um, that not only is a lot of sort of, you know, this this person who I imagine is sort of immersed in woke world and in social constructionist world, um, so much of that world is actually biologically essentialist in a way that um, an actual understanding of human evolution um, would, would not support. And similarly, this so-called progressive world is actually highly reliant on authorities and institutions that are pretending to speak truth, but actually coming to conclusions behind closed doors and never showing us the analysis. And so, you know, part of, part of what we're, we're doing, you know, we've, we've been doing for a while now on the show is, um, you know, not so much in the last couple of months as we've been focused on the book, but um, looking at analyses and assessing whether or not those analyses make sense. And part of the reason uh, that we find ourselves out of step with some of what is being promoted as public health policy right now is that almost nothing that has emerged during this pandemic from public health officials or the CDC, the WHO, whatever, um, comes with a description of the analysis that was done. Sometimes there are some references to data sets, but the actual analysis is elided. It is hidden. It is obscured, which is exactly antithetical to science. Sci not just the results of science need to be in public view, but the actual scientific process. And so the analyses that we've been relying on as we come to conclusions that are wildly out of step sometimes with uh, what some public health officials would say um, are exactly that. They're analyses in which we can actually look at and assess the analyses done. So that's that's what scientists do. Right. That's what scientists do. And, you know, you make the point that um, a review can't start with its conclusion. It's yeah. not a valid review. And the, you can say the exact same thing about science. I don't care 
yeah. how sophisticated your you know measurement apparatus was. I don't care how fancy the laboratory. I don't care what degree you have. If you started with a conclusion and worked backwards from it, it's not only not science; it's the opposite of science, right? Yeah. A review that starts with its conclusion isn't a review. Yeah. Right? Well, you know, a, a review. You know, you could you could imagine a review that's written, which is which did not begin the book with the conclusion, but now that they're writing it, um, they've come to the conclusion. But so, you know, a reviewer who approaches the book that they are supposed to be reviewing already with their conclusion in their head yeah. is not capable of writing a review. The process of review, yeah. right? You have to yeah. be open to the possibility that there's something there before you de declare that it's absent. That's right. So let's just talk a little bit about this, um, um, the, this two-star review on Amazon uh, by a guy named Ryan Boissonneau, whose name I'm unfortunately probably um, butchering here. Uh, let me see if I can pull it up. Uh, here we go. Should we show it or? Why not? Okay. So I, I should just say. So you can show the sack. You know, we were watching the, the book go live and reviews show up and uh, someone called our attention to this review. It was the first negative review. Mm -hmm. And I went and read it and I thought, actually, it's wrong. I think I know why it's wrong, but the person did an honest, uh, they made an honest yeah. attempt at evaluating it. They reached a yes. conclusion that I think is actually very much the beginning of an important discussion. This is what a review of the book should look like that is negative, right? Yeah. So obviously we disagree because if we didn't, we wouldn't have written the book that we did, right? So, uh, you know, we have, we have lots of reviews. Um, you know, we have many, many, I can't. Okay. Sorry guys. Um, uh, we've we've many many reviews that are that are uh, positive and careful and reflective of what's in the book, and there's one negative review that feels to us like what a negative review should sound like. So let's talk about. So he basically he basically disagrees. And you can take my screen off now, Zach. Um, and the title of the review is "Culture Does Not Exist to Serve the Genome," um, which is him pushing back against the um, one of the uh, theoretical concepts that we introduce in the book. Right? This is not already out there in the scientific literature. This is new with us, um, which we introduced in the first chapter, which is the Omega Principle. And um, you know, you, we, we can understand why you might not agree with the Omega Principle, but as we have argued um, elsewhere, uh, if you don't, you have to explain then what culture is. Uh, and if you're simply black boxing culture and saying it can't possibly be evolutionary, it can't possibly be serving uh, genetic ends, uh, then you you are taking it on faith. You know, that's basically a, a faith-rich argument. So uh, well, maybe I, we should say what it is. Omega yeah. Principle. So the Omega Sorry. Principle yeah. is a two-part principle. Yeah. Basically, it, we choose omega because it's a Greek letter. It's supposed to evoke pi, which specifies the precise relationship between the diameter and circumference of a circle. And likewise, omega specifies what we say is the precise relationship, the obligate relationship between culture and other epigenetic phenomenon on the one hand, phenomena on the one hand, mm -hmm. and the genome on the other. And the relationship is epigenetic phenomena evolve more rapidly. They're more adaptable, but they are obligated to the objectives of the genome. That is, they serve the genome's ends. And this is indeed a very provocative claim. Now, I will say something even more provocative here, which is that, of course, you would get some pushback on this, right? Because the sure. implications of this principle are so profound that they really change everything. You know, for most creatures, it doesn't change your evolutionary analysis. It doesn't have almost anything to say about you know, well, at least as far as culture goes, obviously doesn't have anything to say about plants or fungi or most animals. But 
as you get to humans, it changes everything about the meaning of what we are and how we ended up this way. And so if we are incorrect about this, it actually renders a huge amount of the analysis that we do in the book wrong. But we are not incorrect. We show our work. And I don't actually even think that's true. I, I was expecting a little pushback. But yeah. um, the reason that it but, is... Because, the, because there's so much else in the book um, that is consistent with you know mismatch hypothesis or um, scientism as replacing scientific thinking or reductionism and over-reliance on metrics, all, which, all of which are, you know, I, everything that we do... Um, is consistent with one or more of those, but there's plenty um, that doesn't actually rely on Omega, although Omega is consistent with everything that we talk about in the book. No, I would say it differently. I okay. would say there are many things in the book that are true in, irrespective of Omega, but that the central idea, right, is predicated on the basis that our uh, our apparatus for generating culture, the, the conscious apparatus that then generates culture is consistent with an evolutionary analysis, that it is not the cultural layer in conflict with the genetic layer. Mm -hmm. It may be that our, our uh, ancient culture is out of step with our current environment, but it is not that our culture is out of step with our genome. Yeah, no, I, I see this. So, you know, mismatch hypothesis, which has been discussed by many, many people, um, might be absent an understanding of omega principle, um, be imagined to be, this is just, you know, this is just the derangement that modernity brings us because, you know, culture. And we are trying to, to explain something more consistently, more deeply by saying, well, yes, you know, culture, but culture is itself, at least that culture, which is long long standing and expensive to maintain or create and uh, variable in extent is itself inherently an adaptation right so um, I, the the point is this principle is going to end up being right and the reason that we know it's going to end up being right is that the logic that explains why it has to be right is actually not complex at all mm -hmm. right the fact is a cultural brain is the product of a genome which puts the genes in a perfect position to shut it down if it isn't serving the genome's ends and what people the, the step people miss is it's impossible for cultural stuff to be cost free right? Mm -hmm. Cultural stuff that has you doing something is wasting the time and energy of the genome. Cultural stuff that forbids you from doing something is limiting opportunities. So these things are costly to the genome. And therefore, for the genome to have facilitated a, a mind that gets filled with this stuff, it has to have on average paid. Yeah. Right. So um, that said, once you get to that step, right? This is something 1976 Dawkins introduces mimetic evolution. He, uh, it's a brilliant introduction, but he makes what we claim is an error. He says, culture is a new primeval soup. It's basically a new tree of life. Cultural phenomena evolve. He argues correctly, but he's arguing that they are evolving independent of the layer that they, they ride on top of. And were that true, it describes a whole, a very complex, and in fact, a landscape that can't even really be analyzed because many things hover between layers, right? Yeah. Language has both phenomena in it. It has purely cultural stuff and it has a you know genetic underpinning. What do you make of that evolutionarily if these two things are independent? On the other hand, if they're both serving genetic ends, then you can analyze this. And the point is, whoa, a whole bunch of stuff that is paradoxical if we treat it as independent of the genome is no longer paradoxical. It becomes tractable if we approach these things with this uh, this assumption. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded, you know, so we have a section at the very end recommended further reading where we recommend a couple of books, um, 
unrelated to our own work uh, that we have learned from and that speak to some of the issues in that chapter. And so at the very end, we say more technical texts that are nonetheless excellent include, one of the two here is this Jablanca and Lamb text, and I would have pulled up the book, but it's not in this room right now, uh, from 2014 called Evolution in Four Dimensions, Genetic, Epigenetic, Behavioral, and Symbolic Variation in the History of Life. This is an extraordinary book. It's super dense. Um, you know, It's not easygoing, um, even for us. I once I once tried to just give us sort of a page long excerpt to freshmen, um, and it didn't it didn't go over too well. You know, advanced advanced undergraduates would have been different, but it's just it's it's dense. I'll warn you, but it's truly a terrific book. Um, and you know, but the title, genetic, epigenetic, behavioral, and symbolic uh, something something in the evolution of life, um, suggests that they are would seem to imply that these are different things. And so I'm sorry if I missed it, but I think one thing you didn't say in your description of Omega principle this time is that um, we are talking about genetic phenomenon, and everyone has a pretty decent model of what that means, and then epigenetic phenomenon. And epigenetic just means above the genome. And back when we were in grad school, it actually was used in this sensulata way, this broad way, uh, to mean anything that was above the level of the genome that could impact the genome. And then in modern times, most people, um, including many biologists, but certainly most non-biologists, when they hear epigenetic, they assume that what you're talking about is molecular mechanisms, which is a very sensu stricto, a very narrow sense of what epigenetic might mean. So things like DNA methylation. Uh, and what we argue is um, that we have uh, circumscribed our understanding of epigenetics to our peril that there are things like culture that are epigenetic sensu lato um, that are uh, just, as, um, just as much downstream of genetics and also ultimately serving genetic ends. So not only uh, downstream, but the, the shocking thing, the, the part that still surprises me is that actually the analogy between something like culture and something like these molecular mechanisms that regulate gene expression actually do belong very much in the same category because they do the same thing, right? So yeah. if you think about it, uh, for those of you who are not experienced with it, these molecular mechanisms regulate which genes get expressed where. And so you have... And when. Right, where and when. So mm -hmm. the fact that your eyes and your your eye cells and your liver cells look very different, despite having the same genome, is the result of the fact that there are these uh, molecular. To some degree, how to actually? Sorry, but, right? Yeah. But yeah. anyway, it allows you to be a complex organism rather than just a puddle of like cells, right? And so that Which is, is good for most of us. It's pretty darn great. Yeah, and so I'm enjoying it. so you know, imagine that we we recently uh, figured out this landscape enough to begin talking about how that process works. So this is the last several decades. Um, and you can imagine that there would be a lot of excitement about that because, you know, a single genome doesn't an organism make, but, uh, but the separate regulation allows all sorts of things to, to unfold. I mean, including uh, two genomes that are alike, but express one as a male and one as a female, right? These are all epigenetically regulated phenomena. But that excitement about what the epigenetic regulators of genes do obscures this other thing, which is specifically yeah. relevant to humans. And the point is culture regulates the expression of genes too, right? It regulates the fact that your body will be in church on Sunday morning or, you know, not, right? right? Those sorts of things. So the point is it's still shaping the way the genome is expressed in the world, which is why it subscribes to the same rule. 
Um, okay, go ahead. Uh, well, slight, slight pivot. Um, I was just, you know, I'm, I'm very interested in, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the, you know, we continue to do lots of interviews, you know, sometimes multiple ones a day and it's going to continue on, um, into the future, uh, which for which we are grateful. Um, although it's it's super fascinating to see how different the approach of, say, professional scientists is when they talk to us about the book, as opposed to people with um, audiences um, that don't at least understand themselves to be scientific at all. And uh, one of the uh, one of the places where uh, this happened to just be me uh, was interviewed was on the Jim Rutt podcast, and we talked about this a little bit last week. But I was particularly taken with um, this quote from his show notes, just to reflect. And this is not um, his description of our book, um, but his description of his and my conversation about the book. Um, and this is, of course, not a complete list, but um, in his show notes for the show that he and I did together. And again, um, Jim is himself a, a scientist. Yes. Yeah, he's a complexity yeah. scientist. Yeah. I mean, not by degree, but by yeah, um, you know, professional former, history. Yeah, yeah. former uh, head of the Santa Fe Institute, etc. Uh, quote: They, meaning Jim and me, discuss hypernovelty and its challenges, niche switching as the human niche, the naturalistic fallacy, the ancient Beringians' entry into the Americas, the hubris of reductionism and neocornucopianism, humans as the blankest slates, metaphorical and literal campfires, scaling laws and social groups theory of mind, social media's flattening effects, including flattened affects, social media sabbaticals, the sucker's folly, something we introduce in the book, human population explosion, the personal responsibility vortex, which is from an earlier TED Talk of yours, Brett, proto-B communities, the lineage view of evolution, understanding exponentials and fat tail events, culture as evolutionary adaptation, the Omega Principle, again, something we introduce in the book, humanity's fourth frontier, Again, something we introduce in the book. So um, that's, uh, you know, I, I just love that list. It's an accurate and yet still not complete list of the conversation that Jim and I had. And it's certainly not a complete um, telling of what it is that we cover in this book. And so, you know, part of, part of the challenge for people who would hate on us and this book is that um, it's really, really hard to pigeonhole us. And uh, the idea that um, the book is filled with pseudoscience because we have ideas in it um, that haven't been vetted by other people, well, that is, of course, what science does. So I noticed another kind of critique coming back at us, which I want to point to, which I think is actually in its own way a very positive indication. Mm -hmm. In a number of different places uh, on Twitter and on Reddit, I encountered criticisms about all sorts of things that people claim... Uh, we don't talk about, and it's a critical failure of the book, like genetic drift, founder effects, <laughs> um, genetic sweeps. And As I pointed out, we also didn't include Punnett squares. Right, but, but I would point out that this is an echo of a long-standing battle in evolutionary biology that you and I have been part of for decades. It's yep. not like we're unaware of genetic drift, but the basic thing you need to understand to know what this is about is the, so evolution is defined as the change in gene frequency in a population over time. That's evolution. Almost always when people invoke evolution, they mean adaptation, which is something different. It's one of four mechanisms of evolution. Right. And so what they are effectively and the, the thing that you need to understand is that almost all evolutionary change. Heather is closing the window because somebody is, uh, I don't know, tearing up the street or something like that. Um, almost all evolutionary change is 
non-adaptive, right? It is mostly the result of drift and these other lesser mechanisms, uh, migration and mutation. Now, all adaptation ultimately traces back to mutations that then got favored by selection. But the basic point is almost all evolution is not adaptive. Almost everything that matters is in that tiny subset that is adaptive. Right. And so this critique is like a lashing about. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a sorry, but it's, it's the same old, same old. Like I have, I almost have less patience for this one um, because it's, you know, the driftists, as as some in evolutionary biology would call those who see drift as majorly explanatory, um, drift being the random element in evolution. That is, if you happened to be walking under the window when the piano fell out, when the you know, then um, then uh, then that then your death is due to drift as opposed to you were helping, like you were somehow involved there um, as a feature of the piano being there and you died and then that would be a selection. Randomness doesn't build complexity. Yeah. That you know that's the, that that's the argument at its base. That's all it takes, right? Drift is the random element in, in um, evolution. Mutation is the origin of all change. Flow, gene flow, is just the movement between populations, which is utterly important. But you know the four mechanisms of microevolution: mutation, um, origin of all variation, drift, the random element, flow, the movement between populations, and selection. Selection is that which builds complexity. And so is it more rare than drift? Sure. But it builds complexity and randomness can't. Right. It can't do it. And, you know, we could go on at length about this. But the reason yeah. that I, I'm focused on this is that at, some, at the point that multiple people are leveling this criticism, right, what it tells you is they don't have anything else, right? It's pretty yeah. empty. And yeah. I, I had one delightful experience I have to relate to. Okay. <laughs> um, so I saw one of these crit- criticisms. Somebody on Reddit specifically uh, took us to task in the book for not dealing with genetic sweep, founder effects, and uh, drift. Mm-hmm. And I pointed out in a reply that, in fact, though these terms are not mentioned in there, I gave an example of uh, each phenomenon. And I basically mm-hmm. said, look, this is not important because it isn't relevant to the subject matter of the book. Mm-hmm. And the person responded by accusing me of not having read the book, <laughs> which I so thought So you're not showing up as yourself somehow? Uh, uh, if, if you knew enough about us, you probably could have figured out it was me. But re- the basic nature okay. of Reddit is that people's names aren't their names. Okay. And um, so anyway, yes, I, I thought that was lovely. And I should have screenshotted it. Yes, right? you should have. That one should have gone on my wall. Yeah. Uh, but uh, somebody then alerted him to who he was talking to, and he, he uh, edited it. But okay. Anyway, well, yeah, that is that's that's funny. Yeah, that <laughs> soon we'll start seeing that critique. You haven't even read your own. Wait, who wrote it then? Okay. Um, so I guess I want to just sort of cap cap this off by saying um, that if you're scientifically uninterested, especially if you are also unshakable in what turns out to be a scientifically incoherent ideology, such as wokeness or trust the authorities, our book's going to be a threat to you. And it's not meant to be a threat to anyone. It's meant to be a, you know, a, a way, you know, to some degree a guidebook, although it also does dive deep and introduces several new evolutionary concepts while also bringing people up to speed on several um, things that we know to be true in evolution that were, you know, other people's contributions. Um, it's meant to bring everyone in on the conversation about what it is to be human and how best to move forward. Um, it's not a threat to actual scientists, um, nor is it a threat to those without scientific background who are eager to learn. So again, it's not that if you if you happen to be scientifically illiterate, you don't you you can't go here with us. Of course you can. So I'm reminded of 
um, an interaction we had with our, our wonderful editor um, shortly after we signed the book. And we really didn't know her at all. Um, we signed the contract for the book a couple years ago. And she said, uh, who is your intended audience? And I said, everyone. <laughs> and I think she thought I was kidding. Um, but I, I actually haven't asked Helen this. Um, but I, I doubt she does now because... What I said to her was, look, um, certainly, um, you know, us teaching at a uh, not prestigious college still didn't get us access to all of what humanity has, um, although we've also traveled widely enough and interacted with so many, so many types of people. Um, but in our classrooms, we reached across differences that were far greater than you would expect to see in most college classrooms. And we found our common humanity there. And we found that people who came in, even people who came in as creationists, who came in specifically seeking um, to be armed against um, our kinds of ways of approaching the world, found things to, um, to embrace and to honor and to speak to uh, in an evolutionary worldview. So you know, this, is, this is exactly what um, you know, we found ourselves doing. Uh, for for 15 years in classrooms and it's not you know it's the evolutionary worldview and an understanding of humanity and other organisms that is what you and I are driven by much more deeply but because we had this what turns out to have been an interlude of 15 years really learning how to educate and how to to reach people who don't look or sound like us or believe the same things we do or have the same developmental histories uh, we feel like not only does do all people deserve this kind of evolutionary toolkit, but they are capable of receiving it. So uh, I was thinking a little bit about the taxonomy of um, people who don't accept things like the Omega Principle. And mm -hmm. you know, the point is it has to be proposed and you have to decide whether sure. to accept it. But we, we get several different kinds of resistance, right? Uh, I, I see three kinds that we've encountered. One has to do with people who believe that you shouldn't analyze human behavior and culture with these tools. Not right. that it doesn't work, but that it's too dangerous, right? Yep. Now, I am stunned by this. Dawkins, when I met with him in October of 2018 in Chicago, I think it was 2018, in any case, I can't remember now. Whenever, whenever that may have been, um, espoused this perspective that he thought there was something mm -hmm. dangerous about looking at human history through the lens of evolution, which shocked me, right? It seemed to me that he had switched positions uh, from where he would have been in his previous incarnation. But nonetheless, there's an awful lot. No, that's that's common among actually smart evolutionary biologists. I've heard it. I'm not going to name other names here, but I've, I've heard it a lot. Right. But it's yeah. also, it was... Uh, the motivating force, it appears, behind Gould and Lewontin and all sorts of people who were on the other side of the question of adaptation, or as that is dismissed, adaptationism, right? So there was effectively a group of scientists who sought to and were successful in many regards in derailing the evolutionary analysis of people. So in the mm -hmm. aftermath of sociobiology being coined as a term, there was this pushback, mm -hmm. right? And it was disguised in many regards as this doesn't work, but right. really what it was is that's not a good idea. Yep. Um, there are some questions you should not ask. Right. Yep. Um, the second group, I would say, are a group of people who are confused about whether or not this is true. Evolution right? stops at the neck, people. 
Well, I, I don't want to dismiss them that way. I okay. think you shouldn't accept Omega until you see why it has to be right, at mm -hmm. which point, you know, the burden of proof is on those of us who believe in yeah. something like Omega. Yes. Until you've met that burden, you shouldn't accept it. And then once mm -hmm. you see it, hopefully the burden shifts. Um, but anyway, I respect this group, and I, I see it as our obligation to convince them of why this is an important thing to understand and what it does to the understanding of people downstream of it. But the yes. third group, the one that troubles me most, are people who are threatened in a career sense by the exploration of human beings as an evolutionary phenomenon. Mm. So, for example, people in the humanities, right? More likely people in social sciences. I would say, actually, we see it in both. But, you know, if you look at, for example, just by... But these, these modern bastardizations of fields that actually should have a tremendous amount to offer. Well, I think they do potentially have a tremendous amount to offer. The problem is what the nominal field has to offer and the incentives of the individuals in it are quite different. And so if you look at something like the reaction that uh, historians had to guns, germs, and steel, right? Um, it was very, very negative. But yep. when you look at the quality of the critique, it's not about the fact that it doesn't work, it's about its territoriality, yeah. right? And so yep. the idea that, you know, it, if you're gonna do mm, cultural anthropology, right? And you don't want to have to do an analysis that deals with adaptation as a phenomenon. You just simply want to, you know, zoom in and look at cultures and compare them and imagine that you're not looking at a biological phenomenon, right? Then you need Omega not to be right. Right. It's yeah. stay in your laneism as a form of social territoriality. It and it's in a in, in an environment in which the market causes this to emerge because right. people who are not going to be able to participate in that discussion nonetheless want to hold their position within the fields. And so these fields pretend that what they're doing is not impacted by uh, evolutionary right. dynamics uh, yeah. as a matter of, uh, you know. Which means you have to build all sorts of epicycles and, you know, like the, the evolutionary view is clarifying. And once you know it, you can also figure out better. You, ha you have a better chance of figuring out how to avoid and evade the reprehensible parts of what our evolution has uh, made us prone to. Right. right. Like that's, that's the best way to make ourselves better is to know what it is that we have inherited from the past. Right. And, you know, to the extent that you believe that something like uh, cultural evolution uh, or a, a study of cultures has a lot to offer, right? Mm -hmm. You want the most powerful tools with which to analyze it so you understand yeah. what it means rather than just uh, being a purely descriptive phenomenon. Yeah. And so... You know, and you know, we the public pay for fields to study things, right? We subsidize this work. And so the question is, are we getting what we uh, have paid for? And we will get it much more successfully if we accept that there are simplifying rubrics that actually unite this into one story rather than making all of these things separate. Okay. Um, uh, I, I guess I would finish by saying and recognize that we are like almost supposedly done and we have only gotten to a tiny bit of what we were hoping to get to today. Um, I would say that our book is an invitation to think deeply about what we are and how to live better with, um, live better lives at both the individual and the societal level. Like quite explicitly, that's what it is. Um, so if you reject that goal out of hand, I wonder what your goal is. Like what is it that you are serving and what is it that you are trying to achieve? 
um, you, you know, you may disagree with us as um, the one review that we um, discuss does. And I think your your taxonomy of the three the three types of ways that you come to disagreement with something like the Omega Principle uh, is apt. I like that. Um, so I wanted also to say here before we move on to talking about this new this new research out of uh, uh, out of New Mexico, really, um, with regard to the peopling of the Americas. Um, is that we, um, most of this stuff isn't out yet, but um, we did some more interviews this week that were so varied um, in how they came across that uh, it's just worth mentioning. So um, we were on Coast to Coast AM, uh, which uh, is is apparently uh, the longest running radio show out there. Um, And uh, it's very much not a a science show. Um, uh, You know, we got got pushback on, on religion. We talked about the realignment. Uh, no, not we talked about. We were on the realignment. I was trying to understand. Are you sending me a message? Um, <laughs> we were on the realignment with hosts Sagar and Jetty and Marshall Kosloff. I hope I'm pronouncing Marshall's last name correctly, which was largely a political discussion, but we had in there a really nice dive actually into some of what many people who I think have been trained in social sciences and humanities, even just at the at the college level, imagine a Darwinian approach to human behavior would provide us. And so we're in that conversation, we talk about uh, why it is that this is not an invitation to social Darwinism. This is not an invitation to go backwards, and it's not an invitation uh, to pursue our, our worst angels at all, quite the opposite. Uh, we talked with Brian Keating um, with Into the Impossible, uh, which he describes as a podcast of stories, ideas, and speculations from the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination. He's an astrophysicist and uh, the distinguished professor of physics at UC San Diego. So that uh, in that conversation, we got to finally talk a little bit about aliens too, which I thought was fun. And then Sounds of Film with Tom Needham, uh, different feel entirely. He's um, this show has been on the air for thirty years, and you've been on it before. Um, but we we were able to talk in just such a very different way. So I. I'm just thrilled to be able to be having the diversity of conversations we're having. It's not just with scientists and it's not just not with scientists and it's not just with people who come from a religious perspective or not. Uh, it's, it's across the board. Uh, and so in service of that, before we talk about the uh, evidence of humans in North America during the last glacial maximum, did you want to say a few things about the anomalies that we've been seeing with regard to the availability of the book before we sort of move on? beyond talking about this yeah this book. I, I, I just, here's, our, here's our one copy here's the copy we've got so. i just want to um I, I we don't know what to make of the weird there is obviously a supply chain issue but we also know that tens of thousands of books have been printed and uh, and presumably delivered to retailers and we see Amazon oscillating, for example, between... uh, Temporarily out of stock, and briefly it said in stock soon with a delivery date in November, and now it's back to temporarily out of stock. Right. So we don't know what to make of it, but uh, we would ask people to just, if you are looking for it, uh, either order it and it will come hopefully sooner than those projections, or uh, it's available on Barnes & Noble still. It sure is. It sure is. And we forgot to say at the very start, like we, we made the New York Times bestseller list. This is true. Yeah, and it just feels amazing. And you know, we're the second um, 
highest selling book in nonfiction on Amazon last week. That's sure not to be the case this week because they literally haven't had any copies to sell right. the entire week. They haven't had any copies since the third day after publication, um, which is, you know, it, it, it feels good. But it also feels frustrating, and so if you if you want if you want the book and you don't have it, Barnes and Noble does still have it. All right, we have this paper this year that came out, Zachary. If you would show my screen, um, evidence. This is Bennett et al. in Science: Evidence of Humans in North America During the Last Glacial Maximum. And I actually take my screen off for a moment because I'm not logged in there, but I'm going to pull up the PDF so we can show. Um, the amazing pictures. Some of the amazing pictures and some of what I've seen. Yeah. So here you can show my screen again. This is, uh, again, published in Science this week, Evidence of Humans in North America During the Last Glacial Maximum. They are finding, uh, because what they've done is they found footprints in modern-day New Mexico that they can date to 23,000 years ago-ish. And as they say here... And what I've got highlighted, uh, fossil human footprints provide an alternative source of evidence for human presence. Unlike cultural artifacts, modified bones, or other more conventional fossils, footprints have a primary depositional context and are fixed on the imprinted surface. All of that is science speak for actually we can date footprints with greater accuracy and precision uh, than we can date many other uh, types of evidence. So I must say this is a million miles from either of our specialty I do wonder, right, so that the history is that we have a earliest date on which we all agree for the presence of humans in North America, right, the Clovis people. Um, and early. then you don't mean early. We have a farthest back in time date on which we all agree. It goes back at least this far. Nobody oh, at least. Okay. At least this far. Okay. And then there are all of these claims about evidence that go farther back, and yeah. these claims are very contentious. Some of them are stronger than others. Some of them are clearly nonsense. Well, we, I mean, we actually open the book, like the very first chapter, right? It goes into the Beringians and the people of the Americas, and we, you know, we say that we tend towards this these earlier dates yep. um but a conservative estimate is sometime between 10 and 30,000 years that's a huge span sometime between 10 and 30,000 years ago uh the americas uh were peopled for the first time but uh we have the evidence to our eyes has looked even before this like more than 20,000 years ago seems much more likely right and i should say there are there's some other remote contingencies which we should get rid of like there's the possibility that human beings landed in in the americas went extinct and so that could be true and have no implication whatsoever for the peopling of the americas that matters mm -hmm. from the point of view of all of the native cultures that were here um so anyway, that's a possibility. Doesn't There's also some some people are still arguing uh, for crossing the Pacific, uh, yeah. right, as opposed to going through what is now submerged uh, under the Bering Strait, but Beringia as a landmass that was uh, that was a landmass for several thousand years. Right. Mm -hmm. Nonetheless, uh, so I do wonder about the security of the evidence here. Right, mm. So it's possible that it's as secure as they're claiming, mm -hmm. but it's also true that there are various processes that can confuse you, right? So um, these, there's a process, for example, called reworking, right? There are certain things like clams that will actually take uh, material and 
in their excavation for their clam burrows will move it around and so they can put things in the strata that it doesn't belong in, right? But having a 2D, having what is effectively parietal, um, and that that is not itself disrupted by um, such possible right. reworking, reworking. Se- seems to provide good evidence that this, this depositional right. site has not been reworked. But the, what I want to know... But again, you know, we're, may we're, be, we are outside of our It may expertise. be that these folks know exactly what they're doing and mm-hmm. they've ruled out every possibility. But imagine, for example, that footprints had been very, very shallow mm-hmm. and that they had caused a difference in water to accumulate in versus outside of. In other words, water would run off the substrate where there was no footprint and where there was a footprint, you would get extra erosion um, because of a positive feedback. Could it work? Could a footprint work its way down into strata that weren't where it was, uh, where it was made? I don't know. Hopefully these people have ruled that out, but yeah, re- really far outside anything that we have done directly, but sort of, I think you are proposing a process a little bit like um, the fossilization of wood or, you know, fossilization at all well, at some it, level, just, you know, replacement of the original the original material. Just that a physical process could move, you, you know, these are not going to be carbon dated, right? These are going to be dated by the strata in which the footprint yeah. is made, which seems to be unambiguous. But and I read the, it, but I don't remember what exactly the what the methods are here. I don't remember. But anyway, there's a, what you want, it, this is, first of all, if this is true, for there to have been footprints 23,000 years ago mm-hmm. uh, in the Americas nails down, even if you never found another shred of evidence for it. The point is, if those footprints really are that old, then it says there were people to make those footprints then. So the point is, you want to be really sure that there is nothing that could conceivably have misled you mm-hmm. about how old those footprints were before you decide, well, they were here 23,000 years ago, and that's just a simple fact. So anyway, we'll see whether the the result holds up. But if it does, it has many, many implications, right? One of which is, let me just read another little tiny bit from the paper. Uh, Ichnofossils of extinct late Pleistocene fauna occur widely on the margins of the playa and include tracks of proboscidea, mammoth, folivora, ground sloth, carnivora, both canid and felid, and sedardiodactyl, bovid and camelid, most of which are associated with human footprints. So we've got mammoths, ground sloths, uh, wild dogs and cats of unspecified species, and both um, cowish things and camelids uh, present in the same place as uh, as the footprints. Which charismatic megafauna all this puts humans there at the same time as they were abundant, which provides further evidence potentially for the idea that we helped hasten their extinctions. Well, actually, I was wondering about whether it doesn't do exactly the opposite. Um, because, so if 23,000 years is a good date, Mm -hmm. then human beings were not facing the retreating ice sheets. They skirted under them or came across by ship. Well, in this, well, not, you're not arguing across by ship. You're talking about coastal route down by skin. Well, I think that's, no, no, I'm leaving open the remote possibility of some other introductory mechanism from Asia. Ship seems like a strange word here. Boat. Okay. <laughs> um, but the point is, the model, the easiest model is there were people living in Beringia, which there were, and that that population, as the waters rose, moved, right? And that some of them ended up in North America. If 23,000 years is the date, then it may be that... Well, that earlier, because New Mexico isn't, um, you know, Olympia. Right. Yeah. But it could be, you know, mm-hmm. could take 50 years to go that distance. There's not inherently... 
uh, a reason um, for people to move that fast. But it, but the point is, moving during uh, the glaciated period is certainly possible. Mm -hmm. It suggests certain routes and not others, right? It narrows down the likely uh, mode of passage. And it puts people in North America not at exactly the moment of the elimination of many of these megafauna, if I understand it correctly. And so one of the pieces of evidence that people point to with respect to the human overhunting hypothesis, which to me is very plausible because these animals would have had no experience with human hunting and therefore would have behaved the way we see creatures behave in the Galapagos where they don't run away from you, for example, right? right. They would have been easy prey and therefore easily hunted out. But I believe this would interface with that uh, and suggest that it isn't such a tight correlation in time. I'd, I'd like to know better whether or not that's Yeah, accurate. I think um, the strongest evidence that I've seen against the uh, extinction of the North American megafauna, charismatic megafauna not being due to humans has been that uh, at least Clovis first suggested, if I've got my dates right, uh, that humans basically showed up after the extinctions, had, after at least some of the extinctions had already happened or were already clearly on the decline. So it was sort of like... Uh, you know, Pissarro and company arrived on uh, Mayan shores and, um, yes, killed them off, but but the Maya were already on decline in decline at that point. Yeah. Uh, and so this has people um, present well before we have any evidence that the charismatic megafauna populations were already in decline, All suggesting right. that it is possibly um, ca our, our existence here uh, is possibly causal. All right. Interesting. Well, we should uh, talk to some of our paleo friends and see how this actually plays out. Indeed. Now, did you want me to show some of these images? From yeah, this it's paper? worth seeing. I, yeah. I, I was pretty impressed. Zachary. Uh, so we're talking about uh, modern modern New Mexico, of course, and here we have these images of, for those only listening of some of the footprints and that these authors uh, are are finding, and they really are. You know, as tends to be the way with footprints, as opposed to a lot of other kinds of archaeological and um, paleoanthropological uh, evidence footprints tend to look like footprints. Yeah. You know, they're really compelling in a way. Like parietal art is often very compelling. That is to say things like um, cave drawings. Um, but a lot of, you know, pot shards and such often is not compelling unless you already know what you're looking for. But footprints, footprints do something for the for the sort of the visceral brain and body of the person of the modern observing them. Yes, I w when I uh, went to look at the paper, you know, I was expecting not to be terribly convinced by the pictures, which doesn't mean that they're not footprints, but sure. I was expecting to have to take their word for it that that's what they were. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, exactly. I'm compelled. Those yeah. do look like footprints. Yeah, very much so. Um, okay, so this um, this is amazing. This is amazing discovery on the part of the researchers. Um, and it also represents discovery of a geographic frontier on the part of the people uh, who laid down those footprints. And uh, we in the book, and we've talked about this previously on, on this podcast and elsewhere, and it's in the book, talk about these three types of frontiers that humans have historically encountered, geographic frontiers, technological frontiers, and transfer of resource frontiers, the latter of which is a form of theft and is, um, and is immoral. Human history, though, is full of these moments of, of geographic discovery, of you know, however it is and whenever it was that uh, the first... Uh, Americans arrived on the shores of America. Um, you know, be it 10,000 years ago, seems not 20,000 years ago, probably not 25, 30,000 years ago, maybe. Uh, whenever that was, uh, that was discovery. 
that was, you know, there was a moment um, at which uh, people first set foot on this landmass that offered two continents worth of, of opportunity. And because geographic discovery tends to come so early in human history, it doesn't tend to come with texts. You know, these aren't people who are writing things down by and large. Uh, we have later people showing up and thinking they've discovered things who have writing and who write about those things, but those are transfer of resource frontiers, right? You know, the, the Spaniards coming to the New World were not engaged in geographic frontiersism. They were engaged in transfer of resource frontiersism, whether or not they knew that or not. Some of them presumably um, quickly did come to know that, and many of them presumably did not. Columbus discovered Americans. <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so because history, the way that history is taught, and history even, I, I was shocked when I learned this, and it, it, I was well into adulthood when I learned that actually history understands itself to be the study of the written texts of what humans have left behind. Um, and anything before that is called prehistory. Well, because history is biased in this way, and a bias it is, um, it's going to vastly underrepresent geographic frontiers and what happens when humans um, come upon them and, and, and how they explore in that space. And of course, it's part of, it's what paleoanthropologists do and archeologists, and it's part of what we are doing in the book and in our thinking is trying to figure out how it is that humans have engaged in discovery, um, even as you know at this point in time there is there is almost nothing left to be discovered at least on this planet with regard to geographic frontiers. So that bias in history, because of its bias on texts, will steer us from away from deep history. It'll steer us away from stories of non-literate people, um, and as has often been noted, it's going to be more likely to reflect the tales of the victors of wars or the otherwise privileged um, for whatever reason that they were the ones able to tell to tell their stories, not just tell their stories, but write down their stories and have those written archives make it into the into the future, so which I, is to say the now. I would just point out that this interfaces with the guns, terms, and steel analysis because totally. the idea is the cultures that are likely to win when two cultures come into conflict are the ones that have slight advantage by being a few hundred years ahead, technologically speaking, and those are likely to be ones that do have uh, also the capacity to write a description of what took place. Precisely. And it, you know, it's one of the reasons, um, it's one of the reasons that we've, that what happened to the Maya is so, I mean, it's, it's always going to be tragic, but it's particularly tragic because they did have written language yeah. and they did have libraries and it's just extra, we can imagine that they had extraordinary histories and um, scientific textbooks, and I don't know if they would have called them textbooks, but you know they had astronomy, they had the concept of zero, they had roads and city states and politics and um, just extraordinary stuff. And one of the things that the Spaniards did is they destroyed it. So we're left basically with a tiny bit of those things that were inscribed on pyramids, and we're not left with the library. Well, we have one text um, that was written on. Uh some other material, but the rest of it was burned. That which was flammable was burned. Yeah. Um, so, and that's, you know, that's, that's a transfer resource frontier right there. You know, part of what you do is you destroy the history that comes before so that, um, so as to obscure it. Well, and um, I would, I would just in passing point out that whatever that instinct is that causes a population to actually, instead of preserving the, the relics of populations that they have, uh, run across to destroy them, right? That is some sort of an evolutionary lineage against lineage instinct. And we are seeing it. We yeah. are watching, yeah. right, the destruction of- It's one of the reprehensible evolutionary instincts. It's a reprehensible evolutionary instinct that we are seeing within our own culture, right? Yes. The tearing down of statues, yeah. the fact that the 
elk statue in Portland, you know, was successfully removed by crazy people who, you know, obviously couldn't possibly have had a complaint about, you know, the abhorrent views of elk because they don't presumably have any abhorrent views. You may underestimate the people and their views <laughs> on the abhorrent views of elk. They Yes. But in any case, the point is the instinct to be tearing down statues of uh, Lincoln and right. whatever elk happened right. to be memorialized in your city and all of that um, is this ancient instinct to destroy something as you take power and overwrite the prior history. So we should be aware it's unfolding and we can, yes. you know, you can zoom in too close and think it's about something that it really isn't. Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, so, so many places we could go here, but I guess one of, one of the things that I wanted to get to was to say that actually Zachary, our, our producer here, our older son has had several extraordinary history teachers. And I, you know, I want to point out that, um, that what I'm about to say is not true of all of the ways that history is being taught now, but, um, but we also know of more than one high school history class, for instance, um, we've heard tell, um, where the focus is entirely on that third type of frontier that we just talked about. So not on geographic frontiers for this sort of reason, this bias that's built into history where it doesn't talk about those things which haven't been written down, but also not on technological frontiers wherein humans with their ingenuity make more of some resource than what was possible before the technological innovation. But instead of focus entirely on these transfer of resource frontiers, which are not a legitimate form of, of frontier, they are theft. And certainly it has happened a lot. There has been a lot of land theft, for instance, in, in human history. Um, but rather than exploring the diversity of types of frontiers that humans have engaged in, or um, or talking about how technological innovation, for instance, has allowed people to make, um, to make systems that are functional for some period of time. Instead, we have increasingly, with um, the ideology that is spreading in modern history classrooms, many of them, not all of them, a focus entirely on, on theft. And I know you want to talk a little bit about um, exactly a form of theft that seems to be happening right now, but be it land theft or resource theft or people theft in the form of um, slavery. Um, it's a real part of human history to be sure, but it's it's not the only part. And um, also this excuses nothing, but very often the people who are being robbed of their land um, had themselves dispatched whoever came before them. And so, you know, we have this this sort of noble, savage, um, view of people who came before and who had their land stolen from them. Uh, and the people who were doing the stealing are supervillains, and the people who had the land stolen from them are somehow, um, were somehow perfect. And frankly, that's a fairly racist view of, of those people as well. Every civilization that has left a mark has engaged in some combination of cooperation and competition. This, again, is a theme of the book, right? Every single one of us and every single civilization that's left any sort of mark uh, has engaged in both of these things, cooperation and competition. Are some civilizations more brutal than others? For sure, uh, and some less. But pretending that land theft or resource theft or people theft is the only thing worth talking about in human history, that's... That is both a sign of your own privilege to be able to talk about that to the exclusion of all of the wondrous things that humans have done, um, but it also creates in children, the children who are receiving these lessons, a sense of futility. 
you know, it's actually a kind of, I'm, I'm just going to say, like, it's a kind of child abuse to teach children over and over and over again that land theft is the thing that has been what has happened in human history and to not talk about the glorious things and the technological frontiers and the geographic frontiers and the ways that we have learned to get along with one another and to merge and to flourish. But also, I think most troublingly, creates no path forward. Precisely. Right? So if you were to say, well, that's what, I'm, that's, what we should do is we yeah. should restore everything to the people from whom it was stolen, you can't, right? The point is you will have to stop arbitrarily. The people who are present are not the people from whom something was stolen. There's just no mechanism where you could operationalize anything useful. And I think yeah. it, it, it is important to say, first time I heard a declaration about stolen land, I was actually favorable to it. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know what? This is an important recognition, right? This is a historical recognition and a useful one. But the obligation to it, the motivation, has become so pathological. And what it doesn't do is focus on the one answer that addresses all of that theft, right? Mm -hmm. The one answer is to take what we've got, stabilize it, make what we're doing sustainable, and democratize it so everyone has access. And people will make different amounts of it. But the point is, the really abhorrent thing is that opportunity is so far from equal, right? That's the place the focus right. should be. The way we ended up here is some story that is going to be arbitrary depending upon how far back you want to look. And um, so anyway, while we are dicking around with this stupid, guilt-driven, obnoxious mechanism, yep. we are, you know, allowing the destruction to continue, mm -hmm. and we are avoiding, we are running out the clock while we really have a lot to do with respect to making the place uh, continually viable for the next 500 or 1,000 years. That's right. I mean, there were, it, it looks like there were people in modern New Mexico 23,000 years ago. How glorious. How amazing. How did they get there? What decisions can we imagine they made that got them there? What technological innovations did they make while they were there that allowed them to persist? These are the sorts of questions that I want, I want to be exploring and I want my children to be exploring. And I want everyone who's interested in the human condition and both history and future to be exploring. Not just were they displaced at some point later? Were their descendants displaced wrongfully? Yeah. Yeah, they were. That's one piece of their story. It's one piece. Yeah, and um, you know, I our book talks about the mechanism by which people figure out how to switch niches. Uh, I would recommend, though, and we recommend in the book, 1491, yep. which describes the world in the Americas just before Columbus arrived in the New World, right? Mm -hmm. And this, uh, I've called it the greatest story never told, and the idea is all of that niche switching produced this incredible diversity of cultures and insights and innovations. And if there's one thing we can say about them, we know that they happened completely independently of the correlated stuff that happened in the old world because there was no contact between the old and the new world, right? Yeah, the, yeah, the Mayan Enlightenment happened well before, many hundreds of years before the European Enlightenment. And it really is, uh, you know, it's not an exact match, but it's a rough match for essentially the, the Greeks. And you can make an argument that the Inca were uh, similar in their own way to the Romans, that you have this parallelism and these discoveries, which are very human in their nature, the way they come about is part of this process. And most of us don't know anything about it, right? So anyway, 1491 is a great way yeah. to dive in and have some sense of what the 
Americas looked like before Europeans came, and it isn't what you've been taught, right? Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's an amazing diversity and highly recommend it. That's right. Yeah. And that book, 1491, Charles C. Mann, I believe is his name, um, wrote a shorter piece, and I can't remember if it was Harper's or The Atlantic, um, that is a, a great starting point, too, if you don't want to if you don't want to do the whole book, it's a big book. Um, did you want to talk briefly about the Chinese flute? Yes, and I think um, it actually fits this discussion. Yeah, and then we'll do a little bit from Roger Scruton before signing off. All right, so the story, um, which I came to through an AP report that was circulating uh, on Twitter, I saw it this morning, uh, is about an absolutely impossibly gigantic Chinese fleet of fishing vessels that are fishing currently off of South America, off of Galapagos. In fact, they have also done a bunch of fishing off of uh, Argentina and Chile. Zach, do you want to show that little video? So this fishing fleet is apparently currently fishing for Humboldt squid. Um, and what you'll see here is a video these are actual lights. This is taken from space. So this giant fleet of 500 ships uses these giant lights to attract squid up to the surface, which they're harvesting at an incredible rate. Now, these animals are very common, but of course, many very common creatures have been hunted to extinction by humans. It's something that we do. And the, the point that needs to be made is so one— So this is, this is resource theft at some level. This is resource theft, but from mm -hmm. whom, right? Right. Right. Now, there the are, planet. in theory, you know, maritime laws, but these this fleet appears to be in violation of many of them. These ships turn off the transponders they're required to have on. Nobody knows why, but it, it is something that is done when somebody is going to violate maritime rules. This— you know, if you have the sense of like a fishing fleet is boats that go out and they do fishing and they bring back their catch. No, 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 no. This is a permanently at sea fleet. How are they getting their catch back to? Well, that's the thing is there are ships that are presumably transporting hmm. things from them and refueling them at sea. And uh, it's incredible. There's, there's an Indonesian crew there that says they've been trapped at sea for years on these boats. Right. So mm -hmm. this is not like anything we have a good model for. This is some impossibly intense, uh, world altering kind of behavior. I'm not arguing that Chin Chinese invented this, right? right? There are fleets harvesting from the world's oceans and, uh, and wrecking them, but we on land don't have a good sense for what's taking place and what its long-term implications are. And we don't have the structures necessary to say, hey, actually that behavior can't go on because you'll wreck, you know, you'll you'll wreck this population and it won't exist for uh, for future humans. Um, like there was something else I wanted to show, but I can't remember, can't remember what it was. Uh, so I just, oh yeah, I know what it was. Uh, would you show that, uh, I just want to, by analogy, point out that the idea that this is somehow fishing in the sense that we intuitively understand fishing and therefore intuitively have some sense of how destructive it might be is about like the idea of loggers, uh, you know, cutting down trees, right? Take a look at what you want to play that, Zach. Um, oh, okay, here we go. This is what logging can now look like. Right. This is a guy, one guy in a uh, like an excavator operating this object that just liquidates trees. I mean, look at how quickly this tree is limbed and turned into identically 
sized logs that are ready to go off to the lumber yard. It's right? the analog of factory farming. It's even beyond that. It's so it's it's industrial logging, right? Like you can imagine an industrial lumber mill, but this is yeah. just the liquidation of a forest. It's surely with, safer for the people involved. No uh, doubt. And to the extent that there's some overarching plan about, you know, how much lumber you can harvest, right? Why not be efficient about it? Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you can imagine that if you have the same perverse incentives you have in every other industry dictating, uh, you know, that you'll make your money liquidating resources in some region. Can we take that off? Yeah. That makes me very sad. Yeah. That video is terrible. It's really terrible. And 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 yet, you know, we are consumers. <laughs> we are consumers of wood. Yes. Right? Um so, you know, it, the solution isn't uh, no efficient wood harvesting, please. Right. That, that is not the solution. But, uh, but at some level, you're looking at uh, a world that does not have the mechanisms necessary to regulate this kind of power. And right. whether we're talking about the fishing of Humboldt squid or the harvesting of lumber, we need to be aware that the rules that we inherited from 18th century visionaries for regulating how we would interact with each other just aren't up to the challenge of dealing with this kind of technology, yeah. which means this is why the, uh, the last chapter of the book is the fourth frontier. The idea is we need to figure out a way that doesn't look like us liquidating the planet out from under us, um, or we won't survive because that's what we will continue to do. You know, the, the ocean issue is classic tragedy of the commons where you know yeah. if the chinese didn't limit uh didn't liquidate the humboldt squid out of the southern pacific someone else would right and um obviously it has to be addressed yes absolutely um let me read the final two paragraphs of this roger scruton essay that is called dying in time if i can find it on this site here here we go uh, you can show my screen if you want, Zach. I'm just going to be reading it um, as I scroll. I recommend the entire essay, and I'll link in the, in the video description, in the show notes. Courage, therefore, is the sine qua non of any attempt to deal with the threat of senility. Courage to face the truth and to live fully in the face of it. With courage, a person can go about living in another way, a way that will give maximum chance of dying with his faculties intact. This other way is not the way of the welfare culture in which we are all immersed, it does not involve the constant search for comfort or the obsessive pursuit of health. On the contrary, it is a way of benign shabbiness and self-neglect, of risky enjoyments and bold adventures. It involves constant exercise, but not of the body. Rather, exercise of the person through relationships with others, through sacrifice, through the search for opportunities to be involved and exposed. Such, at least, is my intuition. The life of benign shabbiness is not a life of excess. Of course, you should drink, smoke, eat fatty foods, but not to the point of gluttony. The purpose is to weaken the body while strengthening the mind. The risks you take should not damage your will or your relationships, but only your chances of survival. Officious doctors and health fascists will assail you, telling you to correct your diet, to take better forms of exercise, to drink more water and less wine. If you pursue a life of risk-taking and defiance, the thought police will track you down and your lifestyle will be held up to ridicule and contempt. It is not that anyone intends you to live beyond your time. Rather, to use Adam Smith's famous image, the old people's gulag arises by an invisible hand from a false conception of human life, a conception that does not see death as a part of life and timely death as the fruit of it. Each of us must decide for himself what the life of benign shabbiness requires of him. Obviously, dangerous pursuits like hunting and mountaineering have a part to play. 
Equally important is the forthright expression of opinion, so as to, with grateful friends and implacable enemies, a process that enhances both the consolations of social life and the tensions of day-to-day living. I am not sure that I could live with my friend, no, I am not sure that I could live like my friend, the writer and campaigner Ayan Harsi Ali, but there is an adorable recklessness in her truth-directed way of life that makes each moment of it worthwhile. Going out to help others in ways that involve danger and the threat of disease is also a useful form of exposure. The main point, it seems to me, is to maintain a life of active risk and affection while helping the body along the path of decay, remembering always that the value of life does not consist in its length, but in its depth. I love this essay. I don't agree with all of it. I love reading things which strike me as um, getting to the heart of an issue in a way that I had not thought to and uh, coming to conclusions, not all of which I agree with, either for uh, simply uh, differences in values to some slight degree, uh, but differences in perspective. Um, But being able to stand in Scruton's shoes and read this and think, I'm still going to advise our audience at the end of this show to eat good food. And I don't think of myself as a health fascist. And this is not about um, eating well so that you can live to the absolute Uh, extension of your possible life, but to eat good food so that you can do more with the body and the life that you have. Yeah, it strikes me, this resonates on a bunch of different levels, uh, various things that we talk about. This is the opposite of reductionism, Mm -hmm. right? I agree with you. There's some things in there that strike me as not, I wouldn't say they're not right, but I would say that they're not universal. And he's making an argument that makes them sound as if they are. Mm -hmm. But really the point is, look, the length of life is one factor in an equation of something that doesn't have a name that you should be maximizing, right? And so the point is, yes, if you're living well, then living longer gives you more of that well living, which is good. Um, If you are living pointlessly, then lengthening it does very li- little to increase the amount of whatever it is that you might do. Let's call it meaning, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the point is you should be monitoring that thing and you should be balancing how much do I want to just stick around on this planet as long as possible against how much do I want to have, you know, pushed the outside of the envelope before I go, you're right? How much would I have liked to have integrated into my model? How much would I have liked to have contributed to our understanding of ourselves or something like that? And so, you know, it isn't very easy to specify what it is we should be maximizing. But the point is we should be maximizing something synthetic, which does not, which is antithetical to trying to maximize length of life. That's right. And, uh, and lots of, lots of things are like this, you know, um, you know, we, the even the approach to punishment, for example, if you're raising children or pets, right? You it, you can say, well, I don't I don't want to punish. Well, yeah, you shouldn't want to punish. But how do you punish so as to minimize the amount of punishment? It's going to involve punishing well, so mm-hmm. that you don't have to do it very often. Yeah. If if because you don't like the thing that needs to be done, you do it poorly, you increase the likelihood that you will have to do more of it in the future. And if you continue to do it poorly, you will create this positive feedback loop where you create more and more requirement that you do it. And the more poorly you do it, the more requirement there is for the thing. Right. And we don't, you know, this, I think this also goes to what we talk about with respect to the importance of interacting with systems that are not socially defined Mm -hmm. as you are educated or as you educate yourself, because 
those systems will will continue to tell you that if you try to maximize a single parameter, you'll accomplish nothing, right? Yeah. Whereas a, an authority figure might tell you, oh, that's wonderful. You've, you've accomplished so much. And mm -hmm. so if you want to learn these lessons, it might be that you have to step outside the, uh, the social in order to even see them, which we do less and less. That's right. All right. I think we're there. I think we are. I think we're there. So uh, we thank you for being here with us this week. If you are watching live, uh, stick around. We'll take a break as we get the Q&A set up, and then we'll be back to answer the questions that you have posed at uh, darkhorsesubmissions.com. You can also join us tomorrow at my Patreon at 11 a.m. Pacific for our monthly uh, private Q&A. The questions have already been asked, but we are able to engage with people in real time in the chat there. Um, we, you may have heard, we have this, this, this book out, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, and it um, will soon again be available everywhere books are sold, but it is sold out so many places, but we know that at least the beginning of this podcast, it was still available at Barnes & Noble. So um, if you're looking for a copy and you want it soon, um, try there. Hopefully um, all of the supply chain uh, blockages will, re will uh, resolve themselves soon. Anything else you want to say? No, except uh, so many of you have bought it, and thank you. Um, it has it has uh, been very important to us to see how well received it has been and how eager people are to read it. That's extremely rewarding, and, and we are grateful. Yes, we're hoping to start a conversation that goes across many, many borders and uh, that continues to resonate for many years to come. So, until next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Be well, everyone.